to Psalm 13 as we continue in our uh, series on the Psalms. Psalm 13. And uh, once you're there, I'm going to ask you, you can either uh, keep your Bible open or you can close it. We're going to do something a little different as we start uh, tonight. Uh, if you'll notice at the top of the uh, psalm, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. This was a psalm, uh, as most of the psalms we have in the Psalter, ri- uh, written for a congregational worship, for, for the worship of God's people. And so the choir master would take this and, and the choir would sing it. And uh, Max and Emily uh, Bells have uh, put Psalm 13 to music, and I've asked Micah to sing it. It's nearly word for word. If you want to just follow along in your Bible, you can. If you want to just listen to the words the way that the original audience would have heard it, uh, we don't know the tune, of course, uh, but we do have the words. And so uh, receive the word tonight as it's sung. Uh, Micah's going to lead, and, and uh, just listen as Micah sings uh, and catch a sense of the, the pathos of the psalm. Uh, it's, a, it's a complaint, a lament, how long, O Lord, and yet it concludes with an assertion of God's faithfulness and love. And so let's hear the word of God as Micah sings. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and my enemies exalt over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing unto the Lord. I will sing unto the Lord. For he has dealt bountifully with me. I will sing unto the Lord. I will sing unto the Lord. For he has dealt bountifully with me. Amen. The title of my message tonight is How Long. In his excellent book on uh, depression, uh, entitled Deserted by God, Sinclair Ferguson begins chapter 2, which is a, um, he deals with Psalm 13 extensively there. Begins the chapter this way, quote, In the summer of 1851, the lifeless body of the English missionary Alan Gardner was found hidden in the boat in which he had taken refuge uh, during his last days. 
He and his uh, companions had been shipwrecked on Tierra del Fuego. Eventually, their provisions ran out. A death came slowly but inevitably to each one of them. We know the thoughts of Alan Gardner during those days from letters he left for his family and from entries in his personal journal, which was found beside his body. He was at one stage desperate for water. He wrote that his pangs of thirst were almost intolerable. Far from home and loved ones, he died alone, isolated, weakened, and physically broken. Alan Gardner was one of God's children, engaged in the gospel mission. He had left his wife and his young children behind uh, to establish a gospel beachhead in Tierra del Fuego, a people um, that had been, were just sort of considered unreachable. But he and his four companions starved to death without ever reaching a soul. And it very well could seem to some that, or they could, you could assume that God had failed him, that God had forgotten them and abandoned them. Some of you tonight uh, know what it feels like to be abandoned. You have a sense, uh, maybe, of what this is like. You've been involved in some hardship, some ongoing heartache, have experienced some trial that has uh, sapped your strength, stolen away your joy, robbed you of your peace, and maybe even of your health. Your, your prayers have become repeated requests for relief, but the relief doesn't come. That's a common experience of God's people. And so Psalm 13 is a prayer that God's people often pray. How long, O Lord? How long? It's clearly written out of a time of distress. We don't know a specific event to, uh, that David would be referring to here could very well be his trials with Saul. Remember when Saul was trying to kill him? That lasted for years. David was the anointed one, and yet he was running. He was uh, hiding for his, uh, running for his life and hiding because Saul was set to kill him. But whatever it is, the circumstances and experiences just seem to have been gone, uh, going on for too long. And, and he's wondering, where is God in this? The trial has been just too long, way too long, and, and his soul is weary to death, and so David writes this psalm. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? I just want to note as we start uh, looking at the psalm that this is a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of lament. Uh, those who study the psalms as uh, literature uh, tell us that there are, uh, they divide the psalms into various categories or genres, and so you'll have uh, psalms of praise, uh, psalm 8 would be an example. Oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the whole psalm is taken up in praise to God. Uh, there will be psalms of confession. Like Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Uh, psalm 32 is another one. Uh, there will be psalms of wisdom psalms and uh, royal psalms. Just different genres. But... Um, <clears throat> And though there will be an ongoing discussion among Bible scholars as to what exactly are the proper categories and uh, what psalms fit best in which category, they seem to all agree that the category of lament is the largest category in the Psalter. In other words, there are more psalms of lament than of any other kind. That's probably a surprise to you. It was to me, I had assumed that the largest category would be psalms of praise. Those are the psalms that we like to sing. Those are the psalms that we memorize and use in worship. 
But the truth is that psalms of lament outnumber psalms of praise by a lot, almost two to one. That's interesting. More psalms of lament than any other type of psalm. And, and it's interesting, particularly when you remember that the psalms are written to be used in public worship. And so we have here to the choir master at the heading. And so David is instructing the people to gather, and the choir at least would sing these very painful Hard words. And I wonder if, if we really dare be that honest about our struggles with God in a public setting. Do we, do we dare admit that life is, is really, really hard? That sadness surrounds us and that we're at the end of our rope. Those are the kinds of things that you generally would admit only to your closest friends if you admitted them at all. If you, were, if you, were, felt, if you felt safe. But would we admit these things out in the open like this? Would we, would we confess that it, publicly, that it seems like God has forgotten us and that our enemy is prevailing over us? Are we comfortable with that kind of honesty? Well, the Psalms would, would tell us that, yes, we need to be comfortable with that kind of honesty. We need to admit the weakness. We need to confess the, the, uh, the despair, in a sense. How hard it is. I remember reading a book, uh, Red Like Blood, that just made this great line that when we confess the brokenness, when we, when we confess the hurts and, and the pain, he says the cracks are necessary. The cracks in our lives and our facades are essential because the cracks is where the grace goes in. It's only when we can admit the brokenness, when we confess the disillusionment even, that the grace of God then can flow in. When we pretend that everything's okay, we put on this hard veneer, the grace doesn't penetrate. It's interesting, this past week I've heard several people tell me that Psalm 13 is their favorite. I, um, I just wouldn't have imagined that. I asked one of those persons, um, why was it your favorite? How, how is this your favorite psalm? And she said, well, she grew up in an uh, unchristian home. And she says there was so much chaos and so much turmoil, so much hurt in her life as, a, as a, a young girl. But she said Psalm 13 was so encouraging to me because it, it, I, it gave me words to sort of identify what I was feeling, what I was thinking, experiencing. But at the same time, it, it ends with such hope that there's unfailing love. There's a foundation underneath all the hurt. And she had a big smile on her face. She's telling me how much she loves Psalm 13. That's a wonderful testimony. The psalm, if you note, has three, a natural three-part outline, three strophes or paragraphs. In the first the strophe, David pours out his lament, makes known his anguish to God. In the second, he asks God to help him specifically. And then in the third, he breaks into song. And I just want you to notice that radical move, that startling progression from, from grief to singing. He begins with, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? And then he ends just a few verses later with, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has dealt bountifully with me. That, that's an amazing movement. That's an amazing progression. And in David's movement of faith, we find a great road for us to walk in our days of grief. And as we deal with hard things, heartbreaking things, here's a path to follow through our own slew of despond. And so let's look at those three movements in the psalm. First, note the honest profession. 
It's a great encouragement, Psalm 13 is, for us to be honest about our um, hurt, about our spiritual bewilderment when we, when we speak to God. Uh, far too often, uh, we do feel as though God has forgotten us and we maybe feel that God has dropped the ball and maybe we'll talk to some other people about that, some close friends, but, but we often fail in not talking to God about it. David goes to the Lord with it. I was just talking to someone this, this past week, and, and this person said that uh, in, in the midst of an of a extended trial, and, there, and it just doesn't seem to be light at the end of the tunnel. So we talked about that, and, and, he, and he said, just like David would say that the most difficult thing has been the, the sense that God isn't there, that he's had experiences in the past of, of God's presence in a beautiful, profound way, and and that uh, hasn't been his experience in this trial. It feels like God is, is not paying attention. And, and, and that's what he grieves. And so I, I asked him, have you talked to God about that? Have you, have, you, have you asked specifically for God just to give you that, to give you the joy of his presence? And, and he, he said, you know, I have to admit, I haven't. I think maybe we sense that, that it's dangerous to talk like that to God. To actually say to God, God... Have you forgotten me? Have you, where did your goodness go? Where did your promises go? What, what, what happened? Right? It feels like we're, we're challenging God maybe in some sense, but, but David does it very freely here. Speaking honestly to God about where you are in the, in the, in the trial, it's the first step of faith. He's coming to God be, because he believes there is a God, and he believes that, that God would be able to help here. And notice, David doesn't mention the specific circumstances because whatever the circumstance might have been, that is not the ultimate thing he's wrestling with. What he's wrestling is it, with is, God, where are you? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? The ultimate problem is that he doesn't sense the presence of God. When David does sense the presence of God, the circumstance, he, he has no problem with difficult circumstances. Psalm, 120, uh, Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army camp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, yet then I will be confident. When, when God is with him, when David says, senses the favor of God, the, the presence and the power of God, then it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. But the chief problem here is he doesn't sense that. And that's what's weighing heavily on him. And so he asks his plaintive question, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? The ESV breaks that into two questions. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's one, I think, one question. The sense is that how long will you treat me as though you have completely, utterly, eternally forgotten me? That's a, it's, a, it's a heavy statement. It's a heavy question. It, it's packed with grief, with a sense of bewilderment, disillusionment. God in heaven, how long will you act as though I don't exist? How long will you ignore my prayers? How, how long will you act as though my problems are absolutely no concern to you whatsoever. He's speaking to his God and pouring out his heart. How long will you hide your face from me? The face of God is the presence of God in affection and approval, in communion. 
And again, the face of God, if the, if the face of God is shining upon you, it, it doesn't mean that there will not be trials. In fact, isn't it true that oftentimes we feel the face and the, the presence of God most profoundly in times of trial? But nothing makes the trial more difficult for a Christian than a sense that God isn't there, that God has turned away, that he's, the skies are like brass, and you can pray and pray, but nothing gets through. That's, that's heartbreak for a child of God, and it, it weighs on him. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? You know, it's like to take counsel in your soul when, you, when you're just you're talking to yourself, you're wrestling with yourself. What is God trying to do? What is he trying to tell me? Is he, is he trying to reveal some unknown sin in my life? Is he punishing me for something I did in my past? We ask those kinds of questions. Has God abandoned me? Have I, have I just sinned too much? Think about Psalm 77. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 77 where you just have these devastating questions. You think about someone laying in bed at night and the, and the trial is, is weighing on them and a sense that God has forgotten them. Again, written for the choir master. Psalm 77, verse 7. Verse 6, he says, well, let me just start verse 6. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Have you ever had those questions? Taking counsel with your soul? Maybe God is, is just done. Maybe he's, he's turned away. And, and what if he never turns back again? What if he just leaves me to my sin and to my sorrow? And so that's what David is wrestling with. And we can go in, in the counsel that we have with ourselves. We can go from agonizing to strategizing. Maybe we just need to have better plans. We, we'll make plans to work harder, to be more diligent, to be better, a better parent, a better a worker, a better spouse, a better Christian, a, a better uh, obedient child. You see, we, we can fix this. We can make it better, but none, none of the plans really work. And so there's sadness, sadness and forsakenness. Have you ever woken up in the morning and you just feel sad? Just sad. And, and you ask yourself, why do I feel so sad? And then you remembered. You're facing another day without a job. Another day with a, a difficult marriage. Another day with a terminal diagnosis or the danger of that, another day with the demands of a special needs child, another day without a cherished companion, you wake up and, and then you remember it's another day without him. It's another day without her. And every day will be like that for the rest of your life. We had a sort of a poignant moment at GA this past year in the context of um, one of the debate, one of the discussions uh, we were uh, debating a, 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 an appeal that had come to us, and a man got up, uh, one, of the, one of the ministers, and um, talked about how a year and a half ago his wife had died, uh, leaving him with six children, 
and um, how consuming that had been for him to care for his wife when she was sick and, and now she's died and how that, um, the whole experience has nearly broken him and he's, and he's not better yet. And he, he just said this, it was very, um, just very powerful. He said, uh, guys, there are people in crises in your congregations. They're in crises. They're going through the valley. And they're either maybe have given up or they're just lost hope. And he just challenged us. Do you know who they are? Do you know what they're going through? That's what David's going through. How long shall my enemy have triumph over me? He's just defeated. He doesn't tell us what enemy he has in mind. But an enemy is someone, something or someone that fights against your comfort, your joy, your peace. Maybe it's someone at work, your boss, that fights against you. Maybe it's an illness that disables you or the pain that debilitates you. Maybe it's a besetting sin that torments you and triumphs over you. Maybe it's the depression that haunts you, the anger that overtakes you. Whatever it is, it seems to have the upper hand. It exalts over your weakness, over your failure. It, it mocks you in your shame. And you've cried out, Lord, how long? This can't be right. This can't be the way the Christian is supposed to live. But it's the way we do live. They're the questions we do ask, the experiences that we do have, every one of us. And so David begins this with an honest profession of sorrow, sadness, weakness, but he moves then, secondly, he moves to specific petitions and requests to God. He doesn't just wallow in his grief. And you don't sense um, the paralyzing sense of self-pity. He's not really making charges against God. He's not accusing God of wrong. He's just laying it on the table. Lord, I can't, I can't do this anymore. How long is this going to go on? Why, why won't you show your favor to me? And so in the petition in verse 3, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. You see, he lays hold on God. You are my God. O Lord, the word there is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah. He's, he's the God who's made covenant with his people. Hear me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. There's three imperatives. Consider me, answer me, light up my eyes, remember me, take up my cause, review my case, let me know my trials are important to you. I've asked for your help. I've laid my concerns before you. I've confessed my weakness. I've told you it's too, I can't go on anymore. Answer me, God. Give me strength. Give me relief. Light up my eyes. It's a poetic way of saying, restore my hope, restore my joy, restore my confidence that you are present. Give to me the joy of my salvation. And David offers grounds for his appeal. Verse 4, lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. You see, his concern is, is not simply his circumstances, his, his pain, his grief. His concern is also the honor of God. That's the nature of being in covenant with God. So he longs not only for relief to his circumstance, but he wants good to triumph. He wants God to be vindicated. He does not want his enemy to rejoice over him, God's child, because he's been shaken. 
He's concerned about God's honor here. It's the way Moses pleads with God when God tells Moses, step aside. I'm going to destroy these people. I'll make a new nation out of you. And what does Moses plead? He doesn't say, well, Lord, you know, they didn't mean it. He doesn't plead that they deserve anything different. He says, what about your honor? What about your glory? The nations will look and the nations will say, you just led them out here to destroy them. You couldn't provide for them in the wilderness. You bit off more than you could chew. You ever talk like that to God? You ever do that? It may seem a, bl- a bit like a blackmail, doesn't it? I mean, is it okay for us to say, uh, God, if you don't help me, it will make you look bad? That's kind of what he's saying. It's okay to say that, right? It is. It's not blackmail to appeal to God to act according to what he's promised and to appeal to God for the glory and honor of his name. He has told us that he has attached his honor to your well-being. Not your health and wealth as the world understands it, but to your salvation, your well-being, your flourishing even. He's attached his name to that. God's children are meant to be a display in the world of, a faith, of the faithfulness of God, the, the compassion and kindness and goodness and power of God for sinners in Jesus Christ. And it's okay for, for us to plead God for his glory, his honor, as it relates to our case. Now, what that will do, though, is it will shape your prayer. It will shape your prayer. Instead of simply asking, Lord, get this weight off from me, take this pain away from me, there will be a new consideration. It will be, Lord, glorify your name here. And even if the circumstance needs to remain for a while, even if the pain can't be taken away right now, God, glorify your name. Don't let me fall. Don't let me lose my faith. Don't let the enemy triumph over me. Don't let me wallow in self-pity so that I, a Christian, would discredit somehow your goodness. It changes, it, it, it molds the prayer. Don't allow this trial to dishonor you. See, and so you, so you notice in the psalm there's, there's been a subtle shift in David's mind. He began with what almost sounds like a complaint against God, but, but now as he's appealing his case, his mind is moving to, to reflect not only on the, his pain, his, his trouble, but the glory and the honor of God, the, the reality of God and of larger concerns than just his circumstances. Those things are starting to to become clear, sort of breaking through the fog. There's more that's going on than, than simply his, his trouble. There are purposes larger than his pain, considerations that are greater than his own personal circumstances, realities that endure apart from and outside of his woes. He's getting a perspective of a bigger picture, and that's the last strophe. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. How in the world did David get here? Well, you see, as he began to pray to God, talk to God, instead of just wallowing in his grief and and maybe throwing out darts of accusations against God, once he engaged God, his God, his covenant God, and made his appeal to his God, his covenant Lord, 
His mind began to be expanded with the glory of God and the purposes of God, the, the honor of God. So, and, and as he starts to think about those larger things, you see, he rises above the, above the fog of his pain on the wings of faith, and new sights begin to come into view. New mountain ranges of truth appear. New horizons of hope become evident. What does he see as he, as he steps outside of his pain and lifts his eyes to God in faith? He sees things that he's known all along, but is temporarily, he's temporarily forgotten. He's lost sight of them for just a while. They're not new things. He's just lost sight of them. They're things that he's lost touch with. Notice that he remembers that he's trusted God in the past. I have trusted in your steadfast love. His relationship with God wasn't defined by this trial. Though the trial was long, his relationship with God has been longer. He, he's believed in God since a little child. And he's, he remembers times in the past where God delivered him and, and God helped him. Has God changed? Is he different now? But more specifically, what had he trusted about God? Well, he had trusted in God's steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word for God's covenant love. It's love with super glue on it. Boys and girls, you ever play with super glue? It's not as much fun as it looks, right? Because once you get your fingers stuck together, you get a little frantic about, well, how do you get them apart again? It can be painful. God's love is super glue love. Once he binds himself to someone, you're not going to separate them. Ever. Ever. That's what the covenant is about. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And she, David remembers, that's the God I trusted in. That's the love I trusted in. And it's exactly then, you see, as he, as he remembers the superglue love of God, that he is able to break into joy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. There is nothing more beautiful, nothing more poignant, nothing more God-honoring, nothing more um, devastating to the devil. When a Christian in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their grief, in the midst of their tears, and not having any of the questions answered of how it's going to work out, but when they look to the Lord and rejoice in their salvation, it's, it's unbelievably profound. It's so beautiful. These trials are not God's punishment there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who've received covenant love. There may be chastisement, but if it's chastisement, the Heavenly Father knows what He's doing. He's, he's, at, he's about a good work, but it's, it's not abandonment. It's not forgetfulness. It's not judgment. He disciplines those He loves. You see, David remembers that his life is not defined by his failure, by his weakness, by his despair or his pain. His life is truly defined by God's saving love, God's saving promises, God's saving purposes. He is a saved man. He's a saved man. 
rescued from the pain of hell, rescued from the reality of guilt and condemnation, and nothing in his current circumstances can undo or diminish in the slightest what God has done for him in salvation or promised to him. He's a saved man. And in light of God's great work of salvation, God's great goodness to him in salvation, David now can see with fresh eyes the evidence of God's goodness in the midst of his hard pilgrimage. I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt bountifully with me. That is a great line. Remember, nothing has changed in the circumstance. Maybe you've had that experience. You've come to church on a Sunday morning. Your heart was weighed down. Some trial was just breaking your heart. But you find as you enter into the worship and your eyes get lifted to God and you remember the promises and you hear again of God's love for you and his forgiveness and all that he's given to you and promised you in Jesus Christ and you find that that you, you have to sing, and you do sing. The God has been good to you. The Lord has dealt bountifully with me. You see, the, the, the joy has returned for David. He's able to remember all of the evidences of God's goodness to him. God has not treated him as his sins deserved. He's not dealt with him according to his iniquities. He's, he's dealt bountifully with him. Blessings beyond number, goodness upon goodness upon goodness. And God, the living God, was still good and was still his God. And so David's future was bright because God would be faithful. It's a wonderful, wonderful progression. I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt bountifully with me. That was the experience of Alan Gardner. You could easily assume that his last days on earth would have been days of Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. How long, O oh Lord? He had a wife and young children waiting for him back home. He had traveled all this way at great personal cost to share the gospel, and now he's dying of starvation on a lonely beach without ever reaching a soul. But remember, we have his journal. And you know what his final entry says? It's written in squiggly lines because his strength was nearly gone. But these are his last words that we have recorded. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. And God used the death of Alan Gardner and his four companions to spur a revival of missions. That news came back home to, to England and Scotland, and, and men were lining up, men and women, to be sent as missionaries and to give their life for such a God. Friends, where are you tonight? Some of you are in the valley, and it's been a long, long journey. But the goodness of God is for all of his children, and as you trust him and lean on his steadfast love, goodness is what you can know. Goodness is what you can trust. Right now, it may be hard to see. But this, I would just invite you to think about how bountifully the Lord has dealt with you. All the blessings he's given to you, both just things of this life, but most specifically the things of the life to come. He's given his son for you. 
You consider all that he's given to you freely in Jesus, forgiveness of all of your sin, every one of them, not a single one able to stand against you. He's given you the promise that he has a future and a hope for you, a promise that one day you will reign with Jesus Christ and that nothing in this life can separate you from him and that God is going to use you in your weakness in ways you could not have imagined. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you understand that oftentimes it's exactly in our weakness where God does his best work, not only in our hearts, but in the hearts of those around us. God uses our sufferings for his good purposes. You can have the absolute assurance, friends, that goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Yes, the trials are real, and I encourage you to be honest about that. You don't need to pretend. You don't need to keep the stiff upper lip. The trials are real, but they are not ultimate. Grace is. Grace is. Grace is. And your relationship is not, with God is not defined by the trial that you're in, no matter how long it might be. You've been loved by God from before the foundation of the world, and God drew you to himself at some point in your life so that you trusted in his steadfast love. And I would just encourage you to trust in that love again. The cross of Jesus Christ is proof and evidence and confirmation of God's love for you forever. And so trust it, friends. And talk to God. Pray for the grace, pray for the faith to see all his goodness to you, even in the trial. Trust in the Lord and sing, and sing to the honor and glory of God. May he grant it. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, there are some hurting hearts here tonight. There are deep sorrows that we hardly dare speak of unless we lose control. There are ongoing trials and hardships that have sapped us of strength. Lord, some of us maybe feel like we're about to lose our faith. But Father, I thank you for this psalm, and I thank you that you are the God that David was able to appeal to and to take joy in, and Lord, we can do exactly the same. And we do it with even greater evidences of your love for us. Oh, God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are in in the valley tonight, that they would know your love, that they would sense your presence, that you've not abandoned them, you've not forgotten them, you've not forsaken them. Your love surrounds them. You are the one who is holding them up. When they have no strength left, Lord, I thank you that you, you hold them, you keep them, and you will all the way to the end. And Lord, we do pray that you would bring about renewed circumstances, times of healing and times of of comfort and joy and peace as, as you bless and hear us. But oh God, most importantly, teach us to stand in faith and to see with faith all the goodness of God that is ours in Jesus Christ. And so that we can sing even in the trial and have peace and comfort tonight as we lay in our beds because we've been loved with an everlasting, steadfast love. Thanks be to God. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.